The reading is taken from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 23. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead." When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are just a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with the idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to this world, do you submit to the rules, its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. I'm really sorry that I can't be with you today. Wake up. I don't feel too bad, uh, but I had the old uh, double line of doom this morning. Uh, so I'm hoping that you'll make do uh, with a recorded version of this sermon, which I'm preaching at all of our services 
uh, today. And we're continuing our series in Colossians, and today we get to Colossians 2, uh, 6 uh, to 23. What I'd like you to do is imagine that you're standing 50 feet away from Jesus as he's being crucified. Think about the suffering that you witness as he is dying alongside those two criminals. Think of the heartless sufficiency of the Roman soldiers who are just getting on with their job. Think of the cold satisfaction of his enemies uh, taunting him. Think of the agony of Jesus as he cries out in horror to the God that he's seemed to be at one with. And then someone taps you on the shoulder and says, this is the greatest moment of victory and love in human history, right here, right now. You'd say, it's a tragedy, yes. It's a victory of pride and prejudice and hatred, definitely. But it's a moment to hurry away from, not to celebrate. And yet 2,000 years later, that's exactly what we're doing. We are celebrating the cross. And today we're going to find out why. We're going to hear some very powerful descriptions of why we celebrate the cross. And how the great victory that it represents is the foundation of gratitude empowering the Christian life. Paul starts this section of Colossians linking his celebration of the life and the identity of Jesus into a section about how to live Christianly. And it's that bridge that we're looking at today. So he starts by saying, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it, he says, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. Paul has already established uh, for this congregation he doesn't know in Colossae, he's established that Jesus is always everything we need. That's because of who Jesus is, the image of the invisible God, the Son, the one and only. In this section, Paul makes a related but a different point, and that is this, Jesus has already done what needs to be done. That's the point that we will dwell on today. We're going to focus on verses 13 to 15 because it is such a rich and significant celebration of the cross on what Jesus has done in real time. Now, I don't know what you'd say to someone who wanted to understand why the cross of Jesus was so completely fundamental to the Christian faith. You might find it hard to put into words or or feel it's a bit morbid, or you might want to talk about love and resurrection. I hope that our focusing on four particular images that Paul uses about the cross will really help you, really help you, head and heart, to see and know what's going on when we talk about the cross. There's the verse, the, the first, sorry, in verse 13. God made you alive 
with Christ. It's a really arresting image. We're so locked up in our greed and our selfishness and our desire to be in charge that we are as good as dead on the inside. We're so paralysed by events, by our history, by what people tell us, by the fear that we're trapped, that whatever life we actually live still has the stink of death and decay. God made you alive with Christ when Jesus died on the cross. The very awfulness of the cross is the greatest proof that God can take away the sting and the stink of death. The image that would have made little sense to Paul, but we get instantly, is the image of the defibrillator. Now, fun fact, we've actually ordered one as a church and it's going to go up in the concourse soon. We know that if someone is hovering on the precipice of death, you need more than a plaster or a kind word or the desire to be better. You need a massive intrusion of power at the very core of who you are. That's what's happened on the cross, says Paul. That's what Jesus was doing as he screamed out in agony, bringing us back from the dead. The second image comes straight away. God forgave us all our sins, Paul says, having cancelled at the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So, the second image is about debt, lots of debt. Some of us know about debt in a general and a theoretical way. Some of us know much more. We know it's sharp bite. Our selfish and wayward and rebellious desire to run our world comes with a heavy price tag, the Bible tells us. One we can't ever repay. So you'd expect the God of creation to ask us to pay up and to settle our account. But we'll never be able to pay. We'll never be good enough. The debt keeps on rising. So, what does God do? He cancels it. Oh, that's nice. It's a bit like the government, isn't it? Or the big banks. God can afford it, we say. He can take the hit. He can be the bigger person in all this forgiveness malarkey. But how does he cancel it? Not by an accountant's flourishing of a pen. He does it by nailing it to the cross. This is debt collection with a difference. Where did Jesus take our sin and our greed and our fear and our selfishness? He took it to the cross. He took it on himself. He became scum so that we could be pure. He paid our toxic debt and absorbed the loss himself in the most personal terms. But Paul's not finished yet. Colossians 2 verse 15, he writes, and having disarmed the powers and authority. His next picture of the cross is wonderfully and beautifully contemporary. It's the takedown in an action movie. The moment the bad guys have their hand grenades taken away and they have their handguns confiscated 
and they're bundled into the back of the police van. That's the image that we should have. It was the powers and authorities that stand against us that were being disarmed. Now, some of you might be tempted uh, to some sort of coarse-cut Winchester smugness on this point. Yes, you'll say, hundreds of years ago, people were afraid of the night or afraid of spirits or what they saw written in the stars, uh, but not us sophisticated people now. Oh, really? Millions of us read our horoscopes religiously. We keep to our sacred numbers or rituals lest we displeased the big-fisted god of the lottery, or we are overwhelmed with helplessness and we feel that we are powerless in the face of our destiny or our DNA or our upbringing. We are every bit as helpless in the face of powers greater than ourselves. The cross is the big takedown of all the powers that threaten to overwhelm us. The power of sin and greed taken down. The power of our selfishness disarmed. The power of past failures and mistakes shaken to dust by the cross. The power of the ideas and mysterious forces that render us helpless. Those powers are taken away forever. The last image that Paul uses is in the second half of chapter 2, verse 15. He says, He, that's Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, we as a culture are experts in humiliation. We relish the humiliation of strangers and celebrities alike hundreds of times a day. Jesus' culture was very similar in some ways. The Romans were the greatest experts in humiliation. When they won a military victory, the army would return with a long line of prisoners and stolen treasures and, ideally, at the very back, the defeated king they'd conquered. And when the army got back to the gates of Rome, the crowds mocked the humiliated king, taunting and abusing him. And then the defeated king was publicly executed, just to make a very simple but powerful point. This is Paul's most daring but truthful image. A casual observer of the cross would have concluded for sure that it was the perfect storm of pagan and secular and religious power coming together to crush Jesus and snuff out his kingdom. Jesus' humiliation, his powerlessness, could scarcely have been greater than when he was on the cross. But something far deeper was going on, something that we can only truly see in the light of the resurrection. This moment of true wickedness, the execution of the Son of God, was actually the very moment when Jesus humiliated and overcame and undid the powers of evil. On the cross, Jesus showed how utterly powerless those powers are in the face of his love and his forgiveness, how utterly helpless they were to defeat the divine power that brings life from death. 
what looked like abject failure and tragedy was in fact God choosing the way of weakness for our sake. Jesus' death shatters our understanding of God because it shows us God willing to let go of power for the sake of love. We know that power, however well-intentioned, tends to cause suffering. Love, being vulnerable, absorbs it and then transforms it. If you've read or seen C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, you will recognise how powerfully C.S. Lewis takes up this very point in Colossians 2. As Aslan surrenders himself to the white witch at the stone table, her followers shout in triumph. They're lost in this frenzied ecstasy as they cut off Aslan's mane and prepare to kill him. And Susan and Lucy, who are watching, who, who love him so dearly, see only a humiliating failure. They see only a dreadful, uncharacteristic, inexplicable mistake on Aslan's part. Little do they know that as he gives up his life for Edmund, the innocent for the guilty, Aslan is taking away the witch's power, and the witch doesn't know either. This is the deep and beautiful paradox of the cross. Jesus has done all that needs to be done. Things changed that day. Being a Christian is being someone who has started to see past the apparent failure and humiliation of the cross to the deeper purposes and the love of God it so gloriously displays. As a Christian, we dig through the rough skin and bitter pith to the juicy fruit within. And we say, I am dead. I am dead without his power. And I am up to my eyes in debt without his generosity. We say, I am a hostage to fear without his sacrifice. But as a child of the cross, I know that no brokenness is too deep and no sin is too great and no outside force is too controlling for those who are being made alive in Christ Jesus. He is always everything that we need and he has already done all that needs to be done. Amen.